I asked somebody in an interview today, uh, how's the retreat going for you? And uh, they looked really perplexed, and I could kind of see the wheels stirring and going back over the events of the day. And finally they said, that's a really hard question to answer. It's kind of been going every which way. And I could really relate to that. Um, I want to just pass on a tip. You know, when you get home, you're going to get this question a lot. How was your retreat? <laughs> and you can imagine the wheel stirring as you prepare to speak to people at home. So I have um, an insider piece of advice. You just say, it was great. And that's all people want to know. <laughs> and you can go on to the next topic about what's been happening for them. But the reason that it's so hard to answer is that it's always changing. Our experience is always changing. And it's one of the most striking things about a retreat and something that we see early on. It's actually one of our first insights in practice, which is good because this is called insight meditation. You feel you ought to be having some insights or you wouldn't be getting your money's worth. So at least you get that insight out of this. The Buddha talked a lot about this aspect of change. And he actually said, uh, foremost among footprints is the elephant's. Foremost among reflections is that on impermanence. That was a really key part of his teaching. He came back to it again and again and again. And he often combined it with two other aspects that he called the three characteristics of existence. And they are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, sometimes called suffering, and not-self, or selflessness. So in the talk tonight, I'd like to go into these three areas of the Buddha's teachings in a little, more, uh, a little more detail. I sort of think of these as uh, the facts of life for grown-ups. They're sometimes a little hard to take in, but if we want to be an adult in this world, it's really important that we understand these facts. And the Buddha stressed them again and again. I think that we all grow up with a sense of uh, vulnerability that we look at the world, we see the turmoil in the world, and every human being, I think, uh, from adolescence on, is plagued with a sense of some insecurity. Where in all this confusion am I going to find lasting happiness? How is this going to work for me? What will we find that lasts? And of course, the culture gives us a set of answers. You know, a lot of money, good job, a uh, handsome or attractive partner, a uh, big car, lots of gadgets, the latest of all that. And I think all of us are here because we already know that that doesn't really do it. We may have tried it, but I think all of us know that that's not where it's at. But I think that we often still look outside ourselves. I know I have. Um, one of the areas that we look a lot is an intimate relationship. And there's a tendency to put a lot of eggs in that basket. I didn't really quite realize this until I was on a long retreat. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> um, I went away on a two-month retreat, and I left my girlfriend uh, at our home. And when I got to the retreat, I thought, that relationship is so solid. I know I can completely count on that relationship. I don't have a single worry as I go into this retreat. That should have been the tip-off. <laughs> but I did not heed that call. 
And I went into the retreat and practiced for two months. I got quite still, quite open, um, quite raw. I came out at the end of the retreat and I called my girlfriend as soon as we could talk again and found out that she'd gotten involved while I was away in the spiritual scene where the guru basically broke up every single relationship that came into the scene. And in hindsight, what I suspect, what I believe, is that this guru couldn't allow students to have a love relationship with anyone else. It was too divided. So um, I saw the handwriting on the wall as soon as she told me that, and I just felt the bottom fall out of my world. My stomach just went empty and hollow. And I'd been in for two months, so you can imagine we get sensitive when we sit for a while. And the next few weeks were just full of this turmoil and spinning and insecurity. And what it showed is how much attachment I had to that relationship at that point. It was a really clear lesson. It's not that I shouldn't have been in the relationship, but I didn't realize how much I had invested in it until the bottom fell out. In case you're interested in the story, um, we, did, we did make up. And basically, um, she left that scene, which I think is the only way our relationship got over that hurdle. Um, but for me, it, was a, it felt like deprogramming. It felt like the occultish kind of atmosphere in that particular scene. So there was a lot of turmoil as that got sorted out. That was a long, long time ago. Sometimes we learn the hard way. Another place that we easily invest is this body. It was many years ago. I started to go gray. When I was in my early 30s, I started to get gray hair. And I was at one event um, with a friend, and uh, somebody turned to my friend, I couldn't hear, and said, uh, who's that middle-aged man you're with? <laughs> I was really offended. <laughs> I was really shocked. The aging was coming, but I hadn't quite caught up with it yet. And now, as you know, this baby boomer generation is advancing. We were talking in one interview today about all the bad knees and the bad backs and the bad hips. A good friend of mine had a hip replacement surgery last year. Uh, it's coming more and more that we see this nature of the body, of change, impermanence, of aging, and illness. One of the best stories in the tradition of someone who had it all and wasn't satisfied was King Asoka. He was the king in India about 200 years after the death of the Buddha. And he had inherited the kingdom from uh, his uh, grandfather, who was, a, who was an emperor. And Asoka was a very warlike king. His aim was to conquer all the other territories around. And he had gone into one particularly bloody battle with a neighboring kingdom, and he had won. And the day after the battle, he was strolling around the battlefield, looking at the terrain that he'd conquered, and he was appalled by the death, the carnage, and the bloody bodies that were just strewn around the battlefield. And he was thinking, he got him to reflecting about all the greed that had spurred his conquests and how it had left him feeling. And he was, as he was in the middle of this kind of misery, 
a monk, a Buddhist monk, walked across the battlefield. And he had such a serenity and such a radiance, even in the middle of all the carnage, that the king was totally struck by that quality and taken with the appearance of the monk. And he said to himself, how is it that I have everything and I'm miserable? And this monk has nothing and he's so happy, he's so radiant, he's so serene. And at that point, Asoka converted to Buddhism. And in converting to Buddhism, he really picked up dharmic principles and he tried to rule his kingdom in a dharmic fashion. So he stopped the animal sacrifices. He started to tolerate all the religions that were around then. He supported the sangha of monks and nuns. And he stopped making war. And he encouraged charity all through his kingdom to the people, to uh, religious mendicants. And it's, it's gone down as one of the golden ages in Indian history, this rule of righteousness by somebody who had everything but was still miserable. In Tibetan Buddhism, they say that impermanence has four ends. The end of accumulating is dispersing. The end of building is destruction. The end of gathering is separation. And the end of every birth is death. This is inevitable, of course. The Buddha strongly recommended a daily reflection on the fact of our own death. We have such a strong tendency to deny it especially in this culture. But worldwide, it's a human tendency not to believe in our own death. So one of the monk's reflections, 10 daily reflections, goes like this. I reflect that I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. I will eventually be parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. We see this here um, as we get close to nature too. Sometimes we see uh, the death of, of lizards or frogs or insects on the ground. We had a dramatic one a couple of years ago. James and I were teaching here in November. And I happened to be giving the talk one evening at about this time. And in the middle of the talk, there was this blood-curdling scream from outside. And I didn't know what it was, but everybody in the hall sort of sat bolt upright what's going on? It sounded like a young child screaming at the top of their lungs. So a couple of the staff people went out to see, and after the talk, we went out also to see, and what had happened is a deer had gotten killed, and apparently it had been attacked by a couple of dogs, um, because I think they had attacked it at the neck and broken its neck. It was a small deer, not even a year old, and it was just over by um, it was over by Mudita, the third residence hall. Uh, when by the time we got there, it was already dead. So we did some loving kindness practice for it um, and tried to ease its, ease its passage, if that's possible. And these things, of course, happen in nature. Being in the middle of nature, these things happen around us. We called the SPCA and they said they would come and take the body away. So the caretakers actually dragged it down to the front of the property. So the SPCA could take it, but they never came. What was very interesting is that that carcass was down there for uh, the next week, 
And every day it looked different. Every day a little more of it was gone because the vultures and the coyotes would come and eat at it. So in about a week, there wasn't much left that was recognizable as a deer. There were some flaps of hide and the bones, but all the flesh had been picked clean by the visitors who who feed on that. It was a really impactful um, reflection and meditation because it was a reminder of what will happen to our bodies also. That same state is what these bodies will come to at some time in the future. And as the Buddha said, the fact of that is for certain, but the time of it is completely unknown. It could be tomorrow, it could be 10, 20, 30 years from now, but it will happen for all of us. We encourage this reflection not in order to get depressed or get morbid, but because this reflection can be a real waking up to our limited time period. Our time on this earth is really quite short. And especially as I get older, I notice how quickly each new year goes. I don't have that much time left. So it's an incentive to spend it wisely. But something else the Buddha said I find very interesting. He said that there are people who fear death. He said, someone who fears death does so for one of four reasons. They either have a strong desire for sense pleasures, they have a craving for this body, they have not done uh, good deeds in this life, or they have doubt about the Dharma, about the truth of things. Conversely, he said, people who don't have those four qualities do not fear death. Those who do not strongly desire sense pleasures, who don't have a craving for the body, who have done good acts, and who have confidence in the Dharma, he said, don't fear death and have no need to fear death. I take this as an interesting point because in our culture we often think death is something horrible. When we look from a spiritual view, it's a part of life. How could birth be great and death be bad. They're both integral to life. If we think life is okay, that means birth is okay and death is okay. So we see that life are these moments of sense experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, emotion. Does it really matter if we have one more moment or a hundred thousand more moments? In any case, death is going to be there at some point. So we come to uh, meditation as another way to deal with this kind of existential crisis of life. This is a real dilemma. We realize that external things can't ultimately bring happiness. And I think as we come to meditation, most of us, I know I was, was looking for some lasting state of mind that would bring happiness. There must be a way to get a permanent kind of uh, uh, euphoria from this practice, a permanent kind of exhilaration, a permanent up, a permanent high. This was really, when I look back, this was more my expectation in the beginning than the goal of freedom. But of course, as we practice, our intention and understanding changes. 
And we start to see that what really brings happiness of the deepest kind, as Sharda mentioned the other evening, is a purified heart. It's not outer experiences. It's also not a particular inner experience. But when the heart becomes free of the forces of greed, of hatred, and of confusion, then that itself is a happy state, a contented state, a peaceful state. So we come into the retreat situation, and we come upon this fact of change, this constancy of change, just like in our outside life. Retreat is just a microcosm of that life. Sounds are coming and going. The breath is coming and going. Thoughts arise and persist and pass. And then we start to investigate the change in the body. This is a really interesting point in practice. We see that the sensations change. Sometimes the body's comfortable, and sometimes it's not. Can you control that? Can you come into a sitting and say, body, be comfortable. (laughs) Body, be free of pain. We really can't, can we? The change is going on, but it's not under our jurisdiction. It's not under our control. I tried to do this a lot in my early years in practice. It sounds silly, but I did. I spent many, many hours on the cushion trying to make my body comfortable. And you've probably seen that as you generate some awareness, you can loosen up the energy in a part of the body. So if I felt tense or tight, I'd put the attention there and I'd try to loosen up the energy, get it flowing and become unblocked. My ideal was to become unblocked, completely free-flowing sensation. So I'd spend most of the day becoming unblocked, and I'd have about 30 minutes of this free-flowing sensation. I'd go out to walk, I'd come back, and it all would have contracted up again. So I'd start the process all over, working on unblocking, working to get comfortable in the body. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of time. I wasn't practicing mindfulness. I was practicing greed and aversion. I don't like the way the body feels now. I want it to feel differently. I'm going to make it happen. I would have been much, much better off if I just let the mind settle in some kind of equanimity in relation to the discomfort. The mind has the capacity to bear physical discomfort. Finally, after years, I found that out. I could have saved myself a lot of wrong effort. That's why I'm sharing it with you. If I can spare you some of those hours, And we start to investigate more closely. We can't control pain. We can't control pleasure. So we look into the nature of sensations more closely. And the question at some point becomes really interesting. Is there anything solid in this whole field of physical experience? As we get in touch with the actual nature of sensations in the body, despite all the anatomy textbooks we may have seen, we may have seen that you open it up and there's solid stuff in there. There's bones and liver and intestines and spleen and uh, mesentery and all that stuff. But apart from all the pictures, as awareness penetrates the body and becomes as intimate as we can with the body, take a look and see. Is it solid? Is there anything solid? You can take a look right now in your experience. Or is there only the quality of flickering, Pulsation, vibration, tingling, coming and going.
pulsing on and off. We look at the leg and it seems like a solid thing, but when we send the awareness there, we can feel just this play, this dance of sensations that's always changing. Somebody today mentioned in an interview that their body had basically gone away during part of the meditation. Couldn't feel the body. The uh, mindfulness was strong. The concentration was strong. The sense of the body just was not there for them. Is it a solid thing? Or is it just flickers of sensing? We start to investigate the mind. And we see, too, how changeable all the patterns of mind are. James talked about the different weather patterns that move through. One sitting, we're calm and present. The next sitting, it's very stormy. And we can't settle for more than a few seconds on any object. The next sitting, it might be dull. The next sitting, there might be a lot of happiness. The Buddha actually said, if you're going to identify with anything, it's much better to identify with the body than the mind because at least the body stays more constant. said, so the mind changes so fast, don't try to make a constancy out of that. No point. And with the mind states, are they controllable? Can you come in and decide to have a concentrated sitting? Can you come in and decide to be present with the breath for 10 minutes? Can you come in and decide to experience joy? Can you come in and decide not to feel restless? The mind also is ungovernable due to this fact of constant change. One great teaching of this lesson, as Sharda mentioned also, is proximity to nature. Because you see this message carried out again and again in nature. The death of the deer was one example. The changing weather patterns are another example. If you're outside, you're almost always aware of change. Changing sounds, change in the wind or the breeze, change of light and shadow. So the Buddha always advised the meditators to go out, sit at the foot of a tree, sit in a cave, sit in a clearing, in a grove, and feel that change of nature. I spent the better part of a year in forest monasteries in Thailand, living very close uh, to nature, living out in a very small Uh, and not particularly well-insulated hut. And living in that kind of proximity, you really feel this in your bones, how nature's always changing. Sometimes even these beautiful natural settings change due to nature. I was doing a three-month retreat in a little hut in the north of Thailand, and I was right by a beautiful uh, little creek that went down the middle of this canyon. It's at the base of a high canyon and walls on both sides covered with uh, tropical foliage and trees. And it was a very beautiful sound from this little stream. But I'd committed to go to another monastery and leave the one I was in. And I was really getting settled in and I thought, this is really a mistake. I shouldn't be in such a good situation. The food is good, it's quiet, I have the best hut (laughs) in the place. The brook is beautiful, the cliffs are fantastic. I got really agitated. I shouldn't be leaving. And then the rainy season hit. And all of a sudden, my quiet little brook started to fill up with water. And it became this roaring river all day and all night. The sound was deafening. (laughs) So my, my tranquility was taken away due to the change of nature. 
that itself wouldn't have been so bad. But then the stream started to play an old Bob Dylan song. <laughs> All I could hear in the sound of the stream was subterranean homesick blues. <laughs> and I, I discovered that I actually remembered every single verse <laughs> of the song. And I'm going to spare you from the recital of them. But at that point, it was time to go to the other monastery. The conditions had changed. But this um, teaching of impermanence through nature is a really powerful one. And I encourage you sometime in your sitting career to try sitting outside and get that feeling. You can sit outside um, on a bench, on the ground, eyes closed or eyes open, doesn't really matter. Connect with your usual meditation object, connect with the breath, and then open your senses to nature and see what comes through because the teaching is really there. One of my teachers said a really good way to check if you're in touch with reality is, can you tune into impermanence in that moment? Are you aware of change in that moment? If you are, then you're in touch with the truth of the moment. You can check that out. So as we look really deeply with this steady mind that the retreat can bring, we start to see that every aspect of our experience is changing, not just from one sitting to another, but it's really changing in each moment, moment after moment. Things are arising and passing away. This is one of the most important areas in practice to investigate. Given the, the kind of stillness and steadiness of attention that you can find here, turn it to investigate in that direction. Start to look at the uh, as James mentioned this morning, and I think commenting on something Sharda had said, look at the beginnings of things, look at the endings of things. Breath, sounds, thoughts, emotions, body sensations. Start to become aware of that play of life. At one of the forest monasteries where I was staying, the teacher was Ajahn Buddhadasa, who's one of the great Thai masters of the last 50 years. He, he's now dead. Franz also spent quite a bit of time at that monastery. And uh, while I was there, we were lucky that um, we were able to have teachings every week for one period, one part of the retreat, directly from Ajahn Buddhadasa, who spoke good English. He'd give us a different theme um, every week and then a new one. And uh, one week was our last meeting with him. And he gave us a theme that I think could last probably the rest of our lives. So here's the teaching that he, he said to investigate. It's a little complicated, so I want to take a little time, but I hope you'll stay with me. If we look at a sense like the sense of sight, the Buddha said there are three pieces to seeing. He said the eye has to be working. There has to be a good sense organ. There has to be an object out there for us to see. And there has to be consciousness that can receive that sight. A corpse can't see. Someone who's blind can't see because the sense organ isn't working. A corpse can't see because the factor of consciousness has gone. If it's dark in the room, you can't see because the object isn't illuminated. So sight depends on the organ, the object, and the consciousness. So there are these three elements for the um, sense of seeing. As people, we have six senses in the Buddhist view. 
sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind is considered the sixth sense, the qualities of thought, emotion, ideas, and so on. So with these six senses and three elements in each sense, there are 18 different elements. Is that clear so far? Six times three. I know you're slowed down, but (laughs) I just want to make this clear. 18 elements called datus. In the Pali, the term is datu. So Ajahn Buddhadasa said for each of these elements, every time you contact it, investigate five things about it. It's arising, it's passing, it's pleasure or potential for pleasure, it's potential for suffering, and how to be free in relation to it, the possibility of freedom in relation to it. So the arising, the passing, potential for pleasure, potential for suffering, and potential for freedom. 18 times 5 is 90. So we basically had 90 different ways to investigate impermanence. And within impermanence, the possibility of suffering or freedom in relation to each of them. This is a practice that could occupy you for the rest of the retreat, probably for a lot longer than that. You don't have to take it up. But I mention it as one of the possibilities. To see impermanence on that uh, steady or constant a level with every aspect of our experience. So we start to see that nothing in our experience is exempt from this process of arising and passing moment by moment. And we start to see that there's nothing really fixed in this whole world. Everything is coming and going, every part of our experience. When we first start to get a sense for this, this can feel a little unsettling. It's a little bit like the rug's been pulled out from under us, because we like security, we like constancy. So is this a good thing or a bad thing, this impermanence? One of our friends um, married to another practitioner, and they had a daughter who's one of these precocious, beautiful Dharma kids. Um, when she got to be about 14, she'd been hanging out around Dharma language for a long time. And one day she came to her mother and she said, Mom, is duality good or bad? <laughs> well, we could say the same thing about impermanence. Is it good or bad? Or maybe it doesn't fall in those categories. In relation to the hindrances, impermanence is pretty wonderful, isn't it? Do you notice that when greed comes, it doesn't stay? When anger comes, it doesn't stay? When fear comes, it doesn't stay? When sadness comes, it doesn't stay? None of the emotions last, and that's really why we can feel them. That's why it's safe to open to any state of mind. There is ultimately no harm in any state of mind if we meet it with mindfulness, because none of them will stick around. I want to read this passage from uh, Reiner Maria Rilke from a poem in a really lovely book called The Book of Hours, recently translated by Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows, who are both Buddhists. And in this poem, Rilke was going through a very Christian phase. He'd been to Russia and visited a lot of churches that inspired him. And a lot of these poems are written to God. In fact, it's subtitled Love Poems to God. 
So in this one, he imagines that God is making the human being and then giving advice before sending the human being out into life. So that's the setting for the poem. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your memory, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You'll know it by its seriousness. Now, give me your hand. Let yourself feel everything, the beauty and the terror. No feeling is final. Impermanence is our safety net in opening to any experience that comes. But there's another side to it. This is a difficult truth to take in because we have a really deep longing for security. All forms of life have a very deep longing to be secure. All the phrases that we say in the metta practice apply to all living things. We want to be safe. We want to have mental happiness. We want to have physical happiness. We want to live with ease. This deep longing for security can't be found in the middle of impermanent things. It can't be found from impermanent things. Anything that we hold on to from that longing for security is going to change. And as it changes, we'll suffer. So this ties us into the second aspect or characteristic of existence, which the Buddha called uh, dukkha. It's usually translated as suffering, but it has a broader range than just suffering. It means suffering. It also means unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. Because things are constantly changing, they can't be relied upon. It's not that kind of a world. The kind of world it is was described by the Buddha in this passage where he had a dialogue with Ananda. And to fully understand this, there you, it helps to understand that there's a play on, on the terms in the Pali language. Ananda, who's the Buddha's cousin and attendant, asks him, what do you mean by the world? And the Pali term for world is loka, L-O-K-A. The Buddha replies, it disintegrates, therefore it's called the world. The Pali word for disintegrate is paloka. Why is it called loka? Because it palokas. That's why it's called the world. The world disintegrates, moment after moment. This is the nature of reality. We want something solid to hang on to. But not only does it not exist over a long time, it doesn't even exist moment to moment. And this is where your meditation practice can really uncover for you in a way that I don't think any amount of conceptual reflection can. When you have the direct experience of every aspect of your phenomena coming and going, you can no longer believe in that kind of solidity. 
a solidity that goes beyond a moment. The world is disintegrating. The Buddha said if we try to hold on in this kind of a world, it's like someone who's being swept down a river. The river has a swift current and it's just carrying the person along and he keeps reaching out for something on the bank to hold on to, to stop the flow downstream. But all he finds are grasses. He reaches one kind of grass and grabs it and it's just pulled out of the bank and he's swept along. He reaches for another kind of grass and grabs it and it's pulled out of the bank and he's swept along. So this is an image of beings struggling within change to find something concrete, something to stabilize them. The Buddha actually described three different kinds of suffering that kind of go from uh, less subtle or more gross to more subtle or less gross. And uh, James and I and some friends were at teachings about a year ago with the Dalai Lama down in Mountain View. Did some of you go to those at Shoreline? Did you see the Dalai Lama? Yeah, a bunch of you did. So maybe this will be a kind of um, shared memory. It was like a Dharma festival. It was so great because he was up there on a big stage. It's a concert setting, Shoreline Amphitheater. And behind the stage where you'd normally see you know, racks of the band's amplifiers and speakers was painted this huge mural of the uh, Potala in Lhasa, the palace that used to be his home in Lhasa, with a kind of light as though it was uh, late afternoon early evening, this beautiful twilight. And up on stage with him were about, oh, 100, 150 monks and nuns from all three traditions. The Tibetans were on one side and there was just a whole sea of red robes. On the other side were Theravadan and Korean and other Zen monks and nuns. So the, the sight was just delightful. It was sunny. There were something like 6,000 people there. And I sort of thought, well, I didn't get to go to Woodstock, but this might be even better. So we were just kind of basking in that Dharma glow for three days, and he explained a text on emptiness. So as he talked about emptiness, he talked about how uh, the world has this nature of dissolving. And he said, because he's a bodhisattva, of course, and encourages the bodhisattva path, he said, if you really want to help beings come out of their suffering, you have to understand all the ways in which they suffer, from the gross to the subtle. So he explained these three levels of suffering, which the Buddha also talked about. The first is called the suffering of pain, dukkha-dukkha in the Pali. Sort of like double espresso. <laughs> this, is a, this is a double shot of dukkha. And it means the unpleasant experience in mind and body when the body aches, when we're sick, when the mind has states like uh, sadness and grief and longing and fear. This is uh, straight dukkha. The second kind is called viparinama dukkha, and it's translated as the suffering of alternation, meaning that if we are enjoying something pleasant, because if it's conditional, if it's a phenomena of the six senses, and it changes, which it will in time, if we're holding on, we experience a pain in its loss at that time of change, and that's the pain of alternation. The pleasant will eventually turn into unpleasant. And when that happens, it hurts. Now, Ajahn Chah talked often about these two kinds of pain. He said it's like if you grab a snake 
Either end is problematic. If you grab its head, it can bite you, and that's dukkha dukkha. You're directly bitten and hurt. If you grab it by the tail, the other end, and you're holding on tight, the head will swing around and bite you. And that's the pain of clinging to the pleasant. Either way, eventually, one gets bitten, if you're holding on. The third is called Sankara Dukkha. And this means the suffering, or you could really say the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned formations. This is the sense in which we can't take a hold of anything, we can't find security because of the dissolving nature of all our experience. Everything that is conditioned, everything that arises based on prior conditions, this means anything in the senses, has this uh, disillusioning quality to it. And as we try to find our security in the middle of it, we can't. And yet, as human beings, we have a deep longing for security. All of us do. So this is our situation. This is our dilemma. We see there's no way to guarantee a lasting kind of happiness to holding on to what is going to change. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. The teaching of the cause of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are two sides of one coin. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. The corollary is that if we can accept the fact that everything changes, there's the possibility of finding perfect composure. This is a really interesting statement to me. Although the world is unstable, there is the possibility of finding composure within it. What's the key? Where does the avenue lie to that? And to look at this, I want to talk a little bit about the third characteristic, which is the teaching of not-self, or in Pali the term is anatta. In many ways, this is the central question in meditation. Who am I, or what am I? Stephen and Martine Batchelor were just here. I don't know if any of you got a chance to listen to them. Martine spent 10 years in a Korean Zen monastery, where the meditation technique was to sit down Watch the breath in, watch the breath out, and ask the question, what is this? Watch the breath in, watch the breath out, ask the question, what is this? For ten, ten, ten years. This is the same question. Who am I? What am I? What is this? It's all the same question. So as, as human beings, we have a sense of a self. And in our current situation, most of our life revolves around it. Most of our activities and thoughts and plans and hopes and dreams and worries revolve around this self. It's where we put most of our energy. But what's curious is that we generally haven't taken a very close look at it. And so I wonder if in your meditation you've ever tried to find this I. 
Where is this I located? Have you ever looked? Where is this I? The Dalai Lama said that if you just think about it, it seems obvious that there is an I. Who would question it? It's the most self-evident fact of life. Obviously, there's an I. But when you look closely, you can't find the thing. Is it in the head? Is it behind the eyes? Is it somewhere in the middle of the heart? William James said that, the Western philosopher, he said when he looked for the location of the eye, the closest he could get was a little tickle in the back of his throat. (laughs) That's as close as anyone can get, probably. Our concept of eye hasn't been examined, and if it's examined, it doesn't stand up very well. Let me ask you, I want to ask you two questions. Simple questions, they're not trick. I want to ask you, how tall are you? And I want to ask, what color are your eyes? Is everybody able to answer those? Pretty simple, right? So I would say, I am 5 feet 10 inches tall. Now when I stop to think about that, I really have to wonder, is that an accurate representation of, of I? Are my thoughts... 5 feet 10 inches tall? (laughs) Is my metta 5 feet 10 inches tall? Are my other emotions 5 feet 10 inches tall? We really mean the body, don't we? Here when we say I, we mean the body. So we're saying I am the body. Okay, now I, I asked what color are your eyes? I would say my eyes are brown. Well, this is curious. Now I'm not the body. I'm the person who owns the body. These are my eyes. Oh, really? Who? My. I own these eyes. They're mine. Well, that doesn't fit. A moment before, we were the body, and now we're the owner of the body who's standing separate from it. You could do the same thing with the mind. You could ask, you could say at one point, um, I am happy. And then we are the mind. We are the state of happiness. The next moment you talk about my sadness, my grief, my longing, and then we're the owner of the emotion who stands separate from it. And maybe even more fundamental, if we, after we get past those two, there's a sense that we are an observer. And it's almost like we live behind our eyes and we look out at the world through those eyes, taking in all the experience. And it's all happening to me, who am located somewhere inside here. This doesn't hang together. It really doesn't make sense. The more you investigate this sense of I, which is encouraged, the delusion is encouraged through our language, the more you'll see it doesn't make sense. I want to ask another question to explore this. Does the sense of I ever come up by itself? Take a look in your practice and see. Or does it only come up in relationship to something that's happening at one of the sense doors? For instance, we notice that there's a pain here in the knee. And we might think then, I have a pain. Or there's a pain in my knee. The I is forming in relationship to an experience of a bodily sensation. We might um, look out and see a baby deer. And the, the deer doesn't really involve us, 
But very often we'll think to ourselves, I see the deer. So we create an owner of the sight or an agent of the seeing in relationship to that sight. Maybe that's the only place I comes from, is connecting with an experience. Take a look and see if you can feel this self emerging. And if you can, what's happening, what's the feeling in the body of that formation? See if there's a kind of sense energetically of a contraction around the emergence of that eye, a kind of solidification and a narrowing down around the sense of I. This I limits us. We construct a kind of constant ongoing entity that maybe doesn't really exist, not in that ongoing way. We have the feeling, obviously we have the feeling there's an I, but when we look for it, it gets more and more elusive. This is a sutta of the Buddha's called the Bahia Sutta. And he was asked to give his pith instructions to someone who came for teaching. And he said, okay, I'll tell you in a nutshell. In the seeing, let there be just the seen. In the hearing, let there be just the heard. In the sensing, let there be just the sensed. In the cognizing, let there be just the cognized. This, just this, is the end of suffering. What's missing in this formulation is the seer the hearer, the sensor, the cognizer. Experiment with this in your practice. Can there be a moment of experience where there is only the seen, no one claiming it, only the hearing, no one claiming it? And see if in a moment of that kind of pure perception, if there isn't a quality of expansiveness, of peace, in fact, of freedom, The eye-making narrows our experience, contracts us over and over and over again. And it also builds up this quality, which is really the heart of the problem, of self-cherishing. We become so fixated on my wants and needs and hopes and plans and fears and schemes and worries that we lose touch with the situation for the rest of the world. As we undo this contraction and open up to this spacious awareness that we really are, that we deeply are, as the knot of I starts to unravel just a little bit, we have the space to connect with the rest of the world situation. And we see everybody is in the same boat. Every human being is dealing with this problem of a longing for security where it's not to be found. And we can tune in on all those levels of insecurity that everyone faces. And when we see that clearly, there's really only one response, and that's compassion. So this process of looking into the nature of the eye is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a Buddhist mind game that philosophers play because they got tired of counting the number of angels on the top of a pin. It is to undo our self-centeredness and open in compassion to the rest of life. And I think this is really strongly supported with the practice of the Brahma Viharas of metta and the other states of mind. As we open in this expansive way, 
we start to see that what we most deeply are is this awareness. This awareness that holds all the comings and goings, all the changing phenomena called the dhammas, things, phenomena, appearances, Pali term is dhammas, at the six sense doors, all the comings and goings of the momentary flashings into existence and passing out of existence are held within this vast spaciousness. But curiously, this vastness of mind doesn't seem to come and go. Do you notice how it's always there, always illuminating, always functioning? This seems to be more of a constant in our experience. It seems to be the nature, really, of who we are. As we shift our ground of being from grasping the particulars and let it expand into this vast awareness that holds all of life, out of which compassion flowers, we find the possibility of not clinging. We find the possibility of not generating that restriction of I. And of course, we will continue many, 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 many more times to grasp and form that I. But we've seen the possibility. We've seen the doorway to freedom through letting go of what changes. I just want to close with a quotation from Ajahn Mahabua, who's a master in the Thai forest tradition, a Dharma brother of Ajahn Chah, who put it this way, there's no escaping this truth. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in and of itself, won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind of awareness won't vanish. This vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This is what's called the pure mind. All that remains is simple awareness, utterly pure. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. This vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. This is what's called the pure mind. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 23, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.